Welcome to Sound Lore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. Today, we hear from Dr. Rachel Gonzalez-Martin, Associate Professor of Mexican-American and Latino Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, and alumna of the Indiana University Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. This lecture was hosted by Dr. Solimar Otero, Professor of Folklore in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at IU, and editor for the Journal of Folklore Research. And the event was co-sponsored by the Latino Studies Program, the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, La Casa, El Centro, and the City of Bloomington in October 2020. Everybody, bienvenidos, uh, welcome. My name is Solimar Otero. I am the acting director of Latino Studies, and I am so, so excited to have all of you join us for this very special event that's part of our National Latinx Heritage Month. So today, it is my great pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Rachel Gonzalez-Martin, who is going to be our speaker today. She is an associate professor of Mexican-American and Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the author of the award-winning book, Quinceanera Style, Social Belonging and Latinx Consumer Identities, out from the University of Texas Press. And and like I said, it's the 2020 winner of the Emily Toth Best Book in Women's Studies and Popular Culture Award. Um, she's a mama, Latinx folklorist, and cultural studies scholar who is invested in the creative capital of Latinx communities, living social um, and cultural upheaval. She was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she studied cultural anthropology at the University of California, and later received her PhD from Indiana University in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. And she is currently raising her tiny Tejano in Austin, Texas. Um, today, Dr. Uh, Gonzalez will discuss our work on quinceanera cultural traditions among diasporic Latinx communities in the United States. She will emphasize the power of crafting and sharing community stories through creative cultural forms. And she will also focus on the role that women's bodies play as keepers of cultural quote unquote authenticity. And the title of her talk today is Community Memories, Quince Años Traditions as Community History. So without further ado, um, here's Dr. Rachel Gonzalez Martin. Thank you so much, Solia. I really appreciate um, your generous, well, your generous invitation, but also your generous introduction. Um, I have a lot to say, probably too much to say, but I'll start with the thank yous. Solimar Otero, uh, the Department of uh, Mexican, or excuse me, the Department of uh, Folklore, uh, Latino <laughs> Studies at IU. Uh, you know, it's Hispanic Heritage Month. It's close to Day of the Dead. I have acronyms coming out of my ears, but what I'm really, I'm really excited to be here because for me, this is a very interesting moment because I'm connected to essentially all the units that are sort of welcoming me for this talk. So I used to work for the city of Bloomington before um, I started my tenure track position when I was finishing my PhD. I taught for multiple years in Latino studies, um, which really gave me the edge in getting my tenure track job in Latino studies. And I studied for eight years at Indiana in folklore. So um, this is a really wonderful opportunity to share sort of what I'm doing now. and share really some of my ideas that have come from writing this book, from talking and working with communities, but also ideas that kind of never made it in the book. So I'm, I'm excited to share my ideas and I love feedback and I love questions um, because I feel like a lot of what I'm gonna be saying today is actually quite personal. 
because we're going to talk about memories and we're going to talk about remembering and trying not to forget, um, particularly as we think about living as diasporic, uh, diasporic communities, diverse, but still diasporic or presumed to be diasporic communities in the United States. So the title of my chat is Community Memories, Quince Años Traditions as Community History. Um, and already I hope you can see there might be some terms that are kind of coming together, right? Thinking about the idea of memories, thinking about history, thinking about the politics that those words hold and how, especially as, um, as a faculty member teaching undergraduates, those words before you come to my class um, usually are not seen as equal. And so that's something we're going to be thinking about is this idea of, of power, right? And what does it mean to have a story? What does it mean to have your story told? And so one of the first things I'm going to do for you is, is read the preface of my book, which isn't cheating because it's actually my memory, my quinceanera memory, which can be very different um, for most people. So I just want us to take a break for a second and think, maybe even close your eyes and think about your first memory. Think about a significant memory from your childhood. Because more than anything, one of the things I learned from working um, with Latinas, with watching people sell dresses and watching young women plan their event was this idea of the memories they would have and how those memories were more than just objects, um, were more than just material pictures. They were those things, but they were also much more. They were sort of keys to their future to a successful future. What does it mean to close your eyes and remember looking back on your childhood and saying, that was a happy time. And that happy time absolutely has helped shape me as a happy adult or a happy parent or a successful adult or a successful parent or um, you know, career person, whatever, whatever that narrative is. So to me, that's super important. If you look at the title of my book, I do use the term Latinx. And being in Texas right now, teaching in Texas, but I grew up in California, did my research and um, went to graduate school in the Midwest. So Latinx isn't necessarily a term that everyone's on board with in terms of thinking about our larger community. And so I wanted to make sure to um, foreground what I mean by using the X because there's a lot of different perspectives on it. So there's a lot of different terms for identifying Latin American descent communities living in the United States, um, some of whom have never been south of the US-Mexico border, but are still identified in the same way. Um, we've used, we've heard words like Chicano, Chicano, hyphenated American for a variety of national identities, Hispanic. Um, in Texas, Hispanic is still the currency. So I work daily when I teach to sort of remind students what Hispanic means, its connection to Europe, its connection to colonialism, and even connection to the use of the Spanish language, which I'll be the first to admit, I, I was not my first language. Um, and so there is sort of a, a price to pay when we think about um, the terms we use, right? Nothing is perfect. I chose Latinx because working with the communities that I was working with, I worked with um, mujeres trans in Mexico City, queer men across Texas and the Midwest, um, young women who didn't identify as hyphenated American or Chicana who maybe just identified as American, um, but included themselves as Latino, Latina. And so the X is really, uh, although it's under discussion, to me is really a placeholder for potential. Right? We're thinking about the community that could be, and it isn't really about judging anyone's personal 
identity markers. Um, I was giving a talk recently where, you know, I was asked to sort of unpack the X for communities because, you know, the X for many people replaces a certain historical narrative um, where the O or the A, the gendered um, language bits, the use of Spanish is sort of displaced. But I, I'd like people to sort of look at it and think through what is possible for who can be included in our community, right? And what does it mean to say that that X might speak to you if you're not um, on board with gender binaries, if you identify as something other than whatever is that mainstream identity, um, the X is meant to be inclusive. So I just wanted to put that out there um, so we can kind of understand the politics is all over our work, whether it's the content or the images, um, but some of these word choices become really important. So I wanted to put that out there for folks who might see the X and cringe. Know that I'm not trying to uh, identify how you yourself should identify, but um, just how I how the, my work is meant to be queer, non-binary, trans-inclusive. Um, and that's really important to me and sort of the politics of the work that I do. So let me share with you this memory, my memory, and have you just listen for a second. So I never had a quinceanera of my own, but I distinctly remember that Amelia was late, very late. The invited guests and close family had all caravaned together from St. Elizabeth's Catholic Church in East Oakland to the lavish Cameron Stanford House on the edge of Lake Merritt. The historic Victorian house and grounds was a common site for the celebration of weddings and other large private gatherings. To everyone's surprise, Amelia's white limousine hadn't directly followed her family and friends to the reception site as anticipated. It was 1990. I was eight years old and wearing my repurposed first communion dress to serve as Damita, the little maid in my god sister Amelia's quinceanera celebration. My, my role was to represent the childhood that the quinceanera girl was leaving behind. Amelia was actually turning 16 and the celebration was a cultural compromise as most quinceaneras are. This one blended her own desire for a sweet 16 celebration legible to her non-Latinx peers and her mother's wish to reinforce her Puerto Rican heritage. Amelia herself was Puerto Rican Jewish and South Asian. Her mother, Puerto Rican Jewish and a transplanted New Yorker. The Quinceanera celebration was a cultural practice that the two could share, even if Amelia's mother had not celebrated her own. The event was a symbol of intersecting subjectivities made manifest in material goods, dress, limousine, historic house venue, and food. Amelia's mother paced along the edge of the veranda area where the folding chairs and tables that had been rented for the late afternoon event, serving a predominantly Latinx audience of family and friends from other parts of the city, parts of the city with less architectural beauty and historical significance. The interior of the house remained off limits to our party, except for the bathroom and kitchen area. It was only the veranda and the patio that were formally rented for our use. Even standing in the grass, watching my god, the god sister's mother smoke frantically at the back gate and looking down the main street for the limousine to enter in her line of sight, I felt exposed. I was unsettled because I was accustomed to my invisibility. The wide set wrought iron fencing made the entire event and everyone celebrating visible. When I was a child, it wholly escaped me that for, for once we were inside the fence, not peering in at elite experiences that were just out of our reach. On weekends, my family would drive into the Oakland Hills to admire the mansions that overlooked the bay from our repurposed commercial minivan. 
my grandmother would call it Shangri-La. Amelia finally arrived nonchalantly with a small group of friends. She, she had had the limo driver first take her home to change out of her full length peachy gown with thick off shoulder straps and a dress she decided she no longer wanted to wear. And then to her next and primary stop, a nail salon where she had her acrylic nails fixed because one had cracked early in the day. What stood out to me that day was not the mass or even the composition of the crowd. It was the way Amelia celebrated and at the same time still resisted the strictures of the day. Ultimately questioning the very point of the celebration that supposedly dictates the social and cultural norms that Latinas were expected to behave as good girls. Amelia's resistance to her dress, to obedience, to selflessness denaturalized the natural social fantasy of the happy, happily self-effacing Latina woman. Her defiant teenage performance also reinforced how genuine initiation rites like the quinceanera that serve as a bridge into the long road of adulthood are characterized by their fundamental banality, boredom, expense, infighting, and an amazing amount of tedious labor. Amelia was a typical narcissistic teenage US American teenager. This is a true sign of successful initiation into the US mainstream, the privilege of being rendered unremarkable. Seeing Amelia's criticism through action requires that observers question the practice of quinceaneras among US Latinas beyond the tradition's capacity to serve as a female of ideal feminine social performance and religious conservatism. Instead, we need to imagine it as a product of consumption that defies totalizing logic of the primacy of ethnic categorization within contemporary Latinx identifying populations. Or to pose the assertion as a kind of question, what kind of social citizens are Latinas allowed to be? So thank you for indulging me for a moment and having um, and reading that bit, which is my memory um, and my interpretation, right, of my memory, um, thinking about the way in which quinceaneras impact lives differently. Um, so today I want to think about memory because I want to think about the ways in which our memories as individuals and our memories as communities become part of how we understand our placement in the present. And that's a little bit heady to talk about, but I'll talk through it in a variety of different ways. So in Latinx folklore, and I'm a Latinx folklorist, meaning I study the everyday artistry of communities. That's what I do. And so for me to look at folklore and practice, to look what people are doing in the everyday that is artistic, that they consider beautiful, some ways are strategies for survival. Um, and so memory becomes a powerful way to understand how practices help us both survive, but tell a story that we may not yet know. And I'll get there. So when I think about community memories, um, I'm inspired to think through um, multiple places. So clearly I have a book, but in my dissertation and the research that preceded the book, which wasn't much of which wasn't in the book itself, um, included thinking about material objects. And so anyone who's familiar with a quinceanera, and a quinceanera is the special milestone birthday celebration that's um, celebrated in Latinx communities, um, as a way of marking someone's entry into young adulthood. And traditionally those 
identities, right, that transition into young adulthood um, is fraught, right, because teenagers are emotional and parents are demanding and life is hard. And so the idea that these celebrations, more than referencing individual identities, come to mark family identities. They come to mark ways in which families are surviving, are making do, are realizing dreams. Um, but at the same time, if we look at the ways in which these families are making memories, we're also thinking about how larger communities, um, our larger communities of Latinx peoples, right, are coming together and thinking about what have the changes in these traditions or the public face of these traditions done that allow us to understand that our larger community narrative is shifting, right? So how do we go from thinking about memory to thinking about the stories we tell about ourselves, right? And the stories that we experience within our community. And that becomes really important. So we go from thinking about things, right? Um, to thinking about experiences. And, and this is where my research really became interesting for me, was thinking about the way in which young women and their families shopped for quinceanera stuff, particularly for dresses, for recuerdo objects, um, for tuxedos, for the cake, for food. All of, these, um, all of these pieces fit together in such a way that was telling a story. And it wasn't telling a story in the same way that someone might narrate beginning, middle, and end verbally, right? It was a way in which there was a different kind of logic that was being used within communities. And it was this constant back and forth, and even in some ways, a kind of a circular narrative, right? Where daughters were talking to mothers who were then talking to fathers, who were then sharing ideas with larger families and negotiating back and forth. And what became important was less and less the material things. It didn't matter as much what the dress looked like. It didn't matter as much what the physical objects were, but it was about establishing a trail of memories that could follow a young woman through high school, into college, through a professional or um, other forms of adult life that were deemed to be sort of markers of success. And so one of the first things that I like to think about with regards to my work is dispelling the idea that having a quinceanera at all is a marker that a young woman will get married young, that will get pregnant young, that will somehow not continue her education after high school. I think those fallacies are really dangerous. Um, and so I wanna think about the way in which the tradition does something else. And it was the wisdom of mothers. It was talking to um, different women in the community who, had had really rough lives and had talked about the idea that what I want to offer my daughter isn't adulthood. It's actually recognizing sort of the suspension of having to grow up too fast, where growing up too fast meant working young, meant having um, a hard life, meant um, not being able to be youthful or to be like a kid for very long. And instead, mothers wanted their daughters to have happy, carefree memories of their youth that many of them did not have. And that was extremely powerful for me in thinking about that narrative uh, of life and potential linked to this idea of a tradition that's supposed to be rooted deeply in the past with this present moment that there's planning and participation of the family for this event that really isn't as personal as we think it is. It's a social engagement right, that connects daughters to families and then families to the wider social environment, which are all about looking forward, 
right? One of the other fallacies of thinking about Quintanilla celebrations is that it's looking backwards, right? It's looking to identify a current family or community with these old school traditions. But in many ways, the way that my work has really um, examined quinceañeras and some of the ideologies that and intellectual interpretations that communities bring to their own work has been about saying, this is about looking forward. This is a narrative of what we call futurity. This is about figuring out success moving forward. It's not about stagnation in the past. And I think that's really important because I think um, particularly women, Latina women aren't often given enough credit in terms of how they understand what they're doing in terms of traditional practice. And in Latino communities, women are typically seen as the keepers of quote unquote tradition, traditional culture, um, honor, religious identities, usually fall on mothers, right? In grandmothers, in home places. So what if we started listening to the stories of mothers and daughters and grandmothers and tias as narratives of our community? rather than as these um, domestic private narratives for just families. What if we use those to construct something larger? I think there's something quite powerful to that. So part of understanding memory and understanding what memory is or does is thinking about the way in which people connect to the past and again, look forward at the same time. So the image that you're seeing here is a quinceanera photo shoot that's at the Tejano Monument at the Capitol Grounds in Austin, Texas. Now I'm sharing this because this gives you kind of a visual image. Um, if you're familiar with quinceanera celebrations in the last 15 years, that looks quite familiar. Um, you have a young woman in a brightly colored gown and you have a court of young men who are dressed in tuxedos who are linking themselves with little bits of color, right, that link back to the quinceanera girl and her dress. Um, and this is a typical image. In the last 10 or 15 years where courts used to be a representation of a girl's years of life, quinceanera celebrations uh, are rooted in focusing on a young woman and a young woman's body. So her body becomes this place from which people are being asked to look and being asked to judge. And that becomes extremely um, important to understand the story that a family is trying to tell through a quinceanera celebration and the story that she herself is telling about herself through her own creative choices. So when you're thinking about the quinceanera and thinking about the ways in which um, quinceañeras operate as creative spaces, um, I'd like to think about the quinceañeras body as the borderland. Um, and for many of us thinking about the quinceañera as a borderland could be complicated, but we also have to think of it as a kind of cultural landscape. And in many ways, if you grew up in a Latino household or you yourself were a Latina, this understanding of who has control over that landscape becomes kind of complicated and becomes nuanced in such a way that young women learn um, from very early that their body isn't just their own. Their body becomes a representation of their family, of their community, and in many ways, um, their future potential, where something like dress or attitude, the way you speak, how you cut your hair, the choices that are made about bodies um, also impact what people assume, what kind of life you can potentially lead. And that's really interesting and complicated, but what if we looked at it in a different way? So let's say young women's bodies continue to be this space of, this bordered space of border imagination, what um, Chicana feminists call a third space, 
what if we think of it as a place of agency for young women to still gaze on that female body, but to give it a kind of authority and agency to say, this is what our future looks like, rather than trying to limit it by terms of individual families and honor. So when I think about the body, I think about the body as borderland. And I think about dress on the body as a border space that mediates what we call intimate discourses of cultural exchange and self-expression influenced by diverse understandings of current experiences of race, of power, of gender, of social class in the United States. And these are complicated ideas, right? But one of the ways that, one of the reasons that I love thinking about quinceañeras is because the bodily transformation of the young woman from a typical day to her quinceañera celebration is so obvious. And hanging out in Texas uh, and doing my research in Texas in the Bay Area and other locations, mm -hmm. you know when you're looking at a quinceañera dress. You know when you're looking at a wedding dress or what's different between like a prom dress. Quinceañera dresses have a very particular presence that typical ball gown size where you have roughly five feet of uh, crinoline and the skirting. It's very particular, the color coordination is very specific. And so in many ways we're thinking about, you know what you're looking at. And as I would hang out, I used to hang out at the Capitol grounds on Saturday afternoons and just kind of watch people queue up to take pictures at this historical Chicano monument. Um, and it was kind of humorous because you realize what you see, the story that you see in this one individual image is an individual girl with her individual court of young men and placing herself in this historical moment, right? And placing herself on the, on the Texas state capitol grounds, a place where Mexican-Americans and Mexican women in particular have not, have not always been welcomed. Right? And so we see the quinceanera in all her public glory in placing herself in this historical narrative of power. And I think that's extremely moving. And I think it's something that we need to focus on when we think about quinceanera celebrations is what does it mean to take on the monumental task of being visible? Right? What does it mean when young women choose um, to put themselves in this place of visibility and what I call Latina spectacle? Right, this way of saying it's not just about looking at the individual, but the idea of looking at one, being one of many young women in a given day or year or season who's representing her racialized and her cultural and her gendered identity in public. And then as if, you know, just like we're doing right now with thinking about broadcasting live through Facebook, you think for a moment of the images that circulate different times of the year. Um, my, my feed is, is, is regularly full of quinceanera images at different locations, right? Quinceaneras who are putting themselves in a physical public space, but also then in media spaces. And so the idea that these media spaces um, become another way of producing a story that people don't expect Latina youth to have, right? The idea that the story itself is one that's always being written. And that's extremely powerful when you think about the ways in which um, Latinas in particular um, are read and are written about, but are rarely um, are rarely offered a particular amount of agency, right, in the stories that they tell. So some of the work, or much of the work that I did um, in producing this book and thinking about Latinas agency was saying, you know, I can't necessarily, I'm not necessarily going to have a two-hour conversation with um, a 16-year-old girl about her intellectual contribution uh, 
of choosing a certain dress or playing certain music or choosing certain food. But I always ask her to tell me about her choices. What does she like about what she's wearing? Why did she choose a particular um, style? Why did she choose to serve a particular dish? And you realize more and more there's this connection from family to this intense sense of individuality. But then you realize how she got to many of these um, creative questions was all about looking out to the community and integrating the stories that she saw about quinceaneras out online and in the world, making them part of her stories and then broadcasting them back out into the world. And that to me is extremely fascinating because it showed sort of the cycle of learning and creating and sharing. Um, and so in some ways, when we think about folklore as the conversation, the creative conversation that happens within a community, that community changes. There's so many more stories that are being told and being shared that are now readily accessible, that there's a certain amount of power, right, in connecting with that technological angle. So getting to this idea, back to this idea of memory or remembering, one of the things that we wanna consider is that memory is a privilege. Memory is a privilege of communities that have stayed in one place for a long time, that have been told that their stories matter, whose stories have been recorded and put into print. Um, when I think about memory and history for US Latino communities, um, I have to think about this as a communities, communities who live in migration and live in diaspora, live in a kind of separation between what people consider or we consider our homes and where we live currently. And sometimes that ideology isn't so literal. It's sort of a legacy experience. Um, and it becomes extremely important to understand that this in-between place, right? While there's room for creativity. So we think about the Quintanilla's body, right? It's this place for intense creativity. And if we, we overlay some um, symbolism on it, right? It's also an unstable place. It's a place where everything's constantly changing. So I think about the present and I think about Quintas, I and I think about the larger story of US Latinos, I'm thinking about what I call a place of lost stories. And we think about memory, right? And this ability to look back or look forward um, as a very different kind of um, possible interpretation, right? So we think about the past for people who live in migration or statuses of displacement, right? It's kind of obscure. I come from a family who comes from Texas and California but we don't have a lot of personal histories. I don't know what my great grandparents did. Um, in many cases, I'm not even sure where they were born. There's these gaps in these experiential narratives. And I think that's true of a lot of families who've been unable to preserve history by virtue of just survival, right? The ways in which they've been trying to survive. Um, but at the same time, sitting in the present, right? Being creative in this present moment is a chance to recapture stories. And so engaging with folklore, like the tradition of the quinceanera is all about thinking about what do I want to connect with about the past to build a narrative that allows me or my family and my culture to move into the future. And so there's this whole connection with time, right? Trying to understand. So if we take ourselves out of sort of, why should we celebrate a 15 year old, right? Um, it's more about understanding how we as a community um, have gone through different iterations of what we might consider trauma. So this connection between trauma and memory, being displaced 
having moved, been moved across borders, being told we don't belong. And even in the contemporary United States, thinking about you know, black indigenous people of color, right? The social stigmas, the fear that people live in um, of being marginalized socially and culturally um, mean that the present can be a very unstable place. And so this idea of memory, connecting back with real experiences from your past, but also this idea of sort of simulating a connection to a shared past, such as celebrating a quinceanera, um, is about creating a stability to move forward. Right. Um, and so to me, that's always been extremely powerful in terms of what we do and what, what I do with Quinceanera celebrations. This quote, this idea of you only turn 15 once, this particular idea is, is really what got me thinking about the, the notions of memory and space um, and thinking about families that would actively say, you know, I want my daughter to be happy. I want my daughter to be excited about getting older. I want her to have the memories I don't have. And so in, in sort of this commentary with one mother who told me, you only turn 15 once. And this idea that, uh, the idea that there was this sort of desire to connect to a past, this is really a, a question of mothers looking and being really empathetic with their daughter's experiences, with understanding the complications um, of their lives in the United States and being able to say, I want my daughter to have what I didn't have and it isn't necessarily about material objects. It's about this sense of freedom. It's about a sense of uh, about a sense of being able to be a child longer. And this phrase, this "you only turn 15 once," was one of the first. I, I, I received this from one of the first women that I interviewed when I was putting my book together, um, and it stuck with me for now a decade. It always comes back to me, this idea of what does it mean to create this sense of value, right? To create a sense that what we're doing in the present, the celebration, right, has this huge impact, particularly on the future, because we're looking at mothers who are seeing themselves in the present and they're seeing themselves in their daughters. Um, and that's an extremely, I think it's an ex extremely important factor because we often reduce memories, right? Um, to sort of these subjective, often, negatively sort of feminine experiences, right? Oh, that's just something in someone's mind. Um, but the idea that that tells a very particular story about how communities aren't blindly following tradition, how they're intellectualizing every strategic choice they make, which means that thousand dollar dress isn't a waste of their money virtue uh, based on someone else's interpretation, but in fact, it's an investment in the daughter's future right, from their perspective. And that to me has always been extremely powerful. So memory has a lot of places in Quintas. How do we go from the Quinceanera being an individual narrative, right? An individual narrative of a girl, an individual narrative of a dress, an individual um, or personal or private narrative of a family to thinking about the Quinceanera as a community story, right? As something that is mediated through the body of a young woman, right, through the adornment, through her movement, through the photographs that circulate, through the objects that circulate and reference her, it becomes extremely powerful to think about how we go from having a private discourse to a public discourse. Because what we want to, what, what I want to show you here is this shift from quinceaneras being home-based private celebrations to being the public face 
of Latinx communities. Quinceañeras uh, traditionally have uh, recuerdo or memory objects, um, party favors, you might call them, that are custom made for the celebration. And they're very interesting because although they're meant, they're meant to be a remembrance of the celebration, um, they're also very specific. So it isn't just a generic um, item. It usually has a color coordination with the colors of the event or a young woman's dress. It also has the name and the date um, and possibly a theme if the young woman has those items selected for her celebration. Um, and so it becomes a time capsule. I'd like you to think for a moment um, if you grew up in a household with a large china hutch where people put, um, where you put special objects or the good dishes um, that your mom kept safe. Um, growing up, my mother had uh, what she called a vitrina. And in there you would have, you know, figurines, um, but you also had, uh, you know, nice dishes, glass objects, um, but there were also recuerdos from quinceañeras in there. And I found it very interesting. I remember sitting at my mother's home and looking into that vitrina and realizing, wow, this is like a little museum exhibit. There's a whole sense of our, you could see a connection or disconnection in our family stories by looking at the objects that have been curated by my mom, right, um, in these different ways. And so this idea of going back and remembering very clearly that my god sister's recuerdo from her quinceañera was in, was in that vitrina, and it was a little high heel shoe that had a copia, which is the ribbon that's printed with the name and the date, um, and a a peach colored a peach colored ribbon and a peach colored like rose that was attached to the shoe um and it wasn't anything super fancy but instantly when I saw that I remembered my god sister's dress I remembered the color I remember where we were and I realized that that recuerdo was doing its job but it was also maintaining a story not just of the event itself but the fact that we kept it at all that there was only a few we only it was the only that I'd ever been to. So it wasn't necessarily, it was unique. Um, and so it told a story of even the ideas or the values that my family had, right? Or didn't have, didn't share. And so what you're looking at on the screen here is a recuerdo from an undocu quince. So at the University of Texas, um, a student of mine named Vanessa Rodriguez decided that after 15 years of being in the US as an undocumented person, um, she was gonna host a public quinceanera celebration that was gonna be uh, a benefit for um, undocumented students on the University of Texas campus. And for her, it became extremely powerful to couch the celebration in something that was culturally specific, right? Understanding the connection to quinceanera celebrations, um, understanding that when she was 15, she did not have a quinceanera celebration of her own, but also being um, capitalizing on this idea of being public of being undocumented in a public sphere. And for her, so it was this idea of a coming out that wasn't necessarily about girlhood, but was about the politics of her citizenship status. And that really moved me. That idea that quinceañera wasn't necessarily just about this narrative of youth or um, biological coming of age, but it was being used as a symbol to connect communities um, to larger conversations of politics and class and citizenship. Um, and it wouldn't be the first. But the idea though of keeping this idea of the image of the butterfly, the migratory monarchs, which are currently migrating through Texas right now, 
the idea of moving across borders, um, but also raising funds, right? Quinceañeras, um, like any really fancy birthday party, the expectation of a card with a little bit of contribution from your family was all part of this narrative. And so the idea of being able to turn an individual event into a community fundraiser um, was made possible by what we understand as a community of the Quinceanera to be. Um, and her Quinceanera was beautiful. It was held in a huge hall in Austin, Texas. Um, and she raised quite a bit of money um, for undocumented uh, resources on the university campus for, um, for students. And so again, that idea of going from the personal to the public and she chose to put her body on display. She was the symbol, right, of this undocumented experience. Um, and she was gonna be undocumented and unafraid. And so she's really capitalizing on this notion of spectacle, being seen and understanding that although it might be dangerous to be seen, there's also power in being visible. So thinking about that, right, understanding that memory, memory becomes something that we produce that we recast, but we also that we invent, right? So we're reproducing something we've experienced, but as I see with a variety of Quinceanera celebrations, people are starting from scratch. They feel like they're supposed to have a memory of a Quinceanera, that they're supposed to have a memory of a dress or shopping, but they don't. Um, their mothers didn't go through those experiences. And part of this is thinking about this notion of trauma, right? Coming across the border undocumented, um, just being displaced and moving as a child, um, being mobile or being um, disenfranchised in one way or another has created a kind of loss of story. Um, this idea of being cut off from a particular past. And so celebrating the quinceanera, uh, exploring it, um, dressing, performing, being seen becomes a way of, of creating a narrative, right? That wasn't there before. And working with ideas of memory and trauma, thinking a little bit about the ways in which trauma and healing is connected to memories where trauma and forgetting, right? And healing, um, remembering can be part of a process of healing. And so then thinking about this larger conversation of Latinx communities, right? How can we think about this process of remembering as a community? right? Remembering as a community through some kind of shared um, practice or cultural um, tradition is part of a larger sense of changing um, our future as a community, right? Understanding um, the history of loss and choosing to make new memories, right? To fill those gaps. And so a lot of my work um, the end of my book, I start talking about this idea of commemoration, commemoration, Latinx commemoration in particular. We have to consider that remembering in our community isn't the same. Um, not all remembering is the same, right? The idea of understanding that we have gone through as a shared community, um, movement, uh, denigration, um, uh, uh, you know, marginalization, cultural and historical erasure, right? And part of that erasure, what I call in my book, a kind of austerity, right? Being taught that if we just blended in with everyone, everything would be fine. Um, we know isn't true, right? If anything, extinguishing that creative difference harms us more than it helps us. And so part of thinking about publicly remembering together, having a quinceañera, celebrating Dia de los Muertos, producing a kind of memory of past cultural traditions, right? It's part of creating this different future, right? So investment in the present um, by connecting to the past is really about the future.
So as a last sort of example to think through, understanding that U.S. Latino communities, right, have celebrated quinceaneras, had these individual experiences, um, shown young women coming of age. But in 2017, Jolt Texas, which is a community action organization in Austin, celebrated a quinceanera at the Capitol. And what you're looking at is a piece of recuerdo art that was created by a local um, artist, Jocelyn Riojas, for um, for Jolt Texas's hashtag 15 contra SB4 campaign. Now, um, I've recently put out an article um, on Latina activism and this particular campaign in the Journal of American Folklore. Um, and it's all about the idea that quinceaneras, as we look forward, aren't just these private events, right? They're ways in which of creating visibility that is both culturally legible, but also draws in the attention of a wider, um, a wider power base, a wider community audience. And so if you can see this image, right, we're looking at a quinceanera who's being styled as the Statue of Liberty, right? Her ramo, um, her bouquet, um, she's wearing a sash that says no to SB4. SB4 was a house bill in Texas that was an anti-sanctuary cities bill. Um, and so in July of 2017, um, 15 young women went to the Texas Capitol grounds and protested and completely put their bodies on display as representatives of the community um, to protest this bill. They danced, um, they spoke, they did a blessing, they followed many of the cultural rituals um, and they were covered by huge national outlets um, for what they were doing because there was an interesting kind of uh, hybridity to their celebration, because as I showed you in, in the earlier pictures, the Capitol grounds is a place of power and history and people go there to, to create portraiture, right, for their quinceaneras, but these young women were sort of inverting that narrative. It was, it was fairly normal to see a quinceanera at the Capitol, so it's very common to see quinceaneras and their courts running around the street getting cool pictures. In fact, this idea of creating the more and more interesting pictures to circulate are harder and harder to get. These young women, um, some of whom uh, are documented, some of whom are undocumented, um, are able to create this different kind of space where it's not just the words that they're sharing because they were also speaking broadly to undocumented monolingual Spanish speaking sort of community actors. And so the goal was to be physically legible, right? To have their bodies be the sites of discussion where people would say, do those bodies belong at the Capitol? And the answer would be a resounding yes. Um, some of these women, they were all wearing their own dresses from previous years, using their bodies and sort of inverting the narrative that putting their bodies on display is part of sort of a self-deprecating practice, but instead they're saying, we're gonna use this hyper-visibility that is often, get, is often ascribed to us whether we want it or not. The fiery brown body, the fiery Latina, the um, hypersexual Latina. Um, and they were saying, we're gonna invert this. We're gonna use this to draw attention to what our community needs. And at this point it was saying, our community deserves dignity um, and we wanna stop ICE raids and we don't want to be disenfranchised by the state. And it was a huge, it was a huge amazing demonstration that showed what our celebrations and our traditions can be when we see them beyond sort of their local context, right? The idea that tradition became what was familiar and then the story that's told after this point can never be the same 
And I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of thinking about public celebrations, right? Thinking about the ways in which celebrations come to define our families and our lives is that it isn't so much looking backwards and saying it has to be one way, it's this place of innovation. And so thinking about the community story, this is one of activism, right? This is one about young women and youth being at the forefront of activist ideologies, of changing the narratives of what does it mean to come from, in this case, the socioeconomically uh, deprived East Austin area? What does it mean to be a Latina, a public Latina in Texas, right? The idea of putting one's body on the line for your community, but also understanding that um, there's no power in, in hiding. Right? There's no benefit to hiding that in plain sight, we will be seen and we will be heard. Um, and so for me, this is, this is the power. This is the power of thinking about tradition. We have the idea of these visual, these visual narratives that although they're not um, long-winded discussions, right, they fit this narrative of visibility being seen. We have women and girls as these impactful storytellers in Mexican proverb traditions, you have this narrative of calladita te ves mas bonita, right? You're prettier when you're quiet. And I actively think about these young women as defying that historical narrative. It's not even just um, about being pretty. It's about being heard. It's about being loud. It's about saying that we aren't going to be ignored. Um, and we're doing this at the level of our families, right? We're making choices about how we dress, how we speak, but we're also doing this for our community, right? And we're not going to be diminished, right? Um, and so that alone has this kind of um, feminist ideology, this feminist power to it, right? Of repurposing the hypervisibility of stereotype to the hypervisibility of choice. Um, this is the creative public, right? There's something really empowering about seeing young women transform a narrative in front of your face and then realizing that the tradition itself could never be the same again, right? To anyone who's seen this. Um, and that's a lot of power when we think about the way stories and traditions are traditionally, are customarily um, transferred to us from one generation to the next, right? We become beholden to their meanings. But in this case, we're not. Um, and so my my final sort of thought, right, is that thinking about quinceaneras and thinking about those who might say it's confined to the past is it's really about remembering the future, right? It's looking back, it's thinking about creating a body of stories, a body of narratives, um, and it's about creating a certain kind of normalization for the visibility of the Latinx community, and it's doing so through the bodies of young women, right? So the idea then is that this commemorative process, right, thinking about remembering, remembering together, remembering loud, remembering brightly, right? These are all ways in which um, we create a kind of different public sphere, an understanding of our right to exist, our right to be seen, um, and our right to be heard. And I think um, young women celebrating this tradition, this is what they're doing. is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and Some Other Clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, 
please subscribe to Sound Lore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.